When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Florida, get ready. This is going to be a big one. The lead starts right now. Evacuations ordered. Hurricane Ian on track to become a monster Category 4 storm, with all eyes watching to see exactly where the system will hit. And high-level contact. Who in Trump's White House called a January 6th rioter? Plus, what new text messages from Mark Meadows reveal, and why a former congressman pressed the January 6th committee to question the wife of a Supreme Court justice. We're going to ask him live this hour. Also, 10 straight days of protests in Iran for a woman killed over a hijab. Now the regime is out with its own crowds pushing a different narrative. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Casey Hunt, in for Jake Tapper. We start in our politics lead. We are less than 48 hours away from the next public January 6th committee hearing. And CNN is learning about text messages from then-Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows directly linking the White House with a pro-Trump operative who was trying to seize voting machines. We're going to have more on this exchange in just a moment. But we're also learning about new links between the White House and a rioter on January 6th. Denver Riggleman, who was an advisor to the January 6th committee, is now telling CBS 60 Minutes about a phone call between the White House and a Capitol rioter, who CNN is identifying as a 26-year-old Trump supporter, Anton Lunick. Riggleman will join us here on The Lead in just a moment. But first, CNN's Sarah Murray, who has been tracking all these developments and what we know about the high-level contacts. As Donald Trump and his allies made a final push to overturn the 2020 election... There is still plenty of time to certify the correct winner. Retired Army colonel and election conspiracy promoter Phil Waldron... The core of these uh, voting systems are um, rife with... Vulnerabilities. Communicated directly with then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, complaining that an Arizona judge dismissed a lawsuit calling for state officials to hand over election equipment. Waldron, hunting for proof of baseless fraud claims, told Meadows Arizona was our lead domino we were counting on to start the cascade, and complained opponents were using delay tactics, according to text messages obtained by CNN. Pathetic, Meadows responded. Waldron and his attorneys didn't respond to a request for comment, nor did an attorney for Meadows. The new details about efforts to access voting machines reaching the top tier of the White House come as federal and state prosecutors are scrutinizing efforts to upend the 2020 election and as the House committee investigating January 6th is gearing up for another hearing this week. My expectation is this will be the last investigative hearing. Wisconsin House Speaker Robin Voss. We have no ability to decertify the election and go back and nullify it. We do not to block a subpoena from the House committee, which demanded his testimony today. The committee wants to ask him about Trump's efforts as recently as July, pressing Voss to decertify the state's election results. He would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. He has a different opinion. Voss's testimony pushed off while that legal fight plays out. Meantime, more questions swirling about a nine-second call from the Trump White House on January 6th to one of the rioters. Do you get a real aha moment? 
after the brief call was revealed by former committee staffer Denver Riggleman. CNN reporting it went from a White House landline to a cell phone belonging to 26-year-old Anton Lunick, a Trump supporter from Brooklyn, New York, who illegally entered the U.S. Capitol with friends and pleaded guilty to a related charge in April. The call's content and significance still a mystery, one that has committee members urging caution. One of the things I think that has given our committee credibility is we've been very careful about what we say, not to overstate matters. Now, attorneys for Lunick and his friends declined to comment, and sources tell CNN the Trump supporter doesn't remember receiving the call, Casey, and he doesn't know anyone who worked in the Trump White House. Very interesting. I'm sure we'll keep following this. Sarah Murray, thanks very much for that report. Let's bring in now former Virginia congressman and former advisor to the January 6th committee, Denver Riggleman. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. You announced that you are coming out with a book titled The Breach, in which you detail your work with the January 6th committee. Are you worried at all that your book could hamper the committee's work? They still have yet to release their final report. Not at all. Uh, you know, the report's been a bit a little fluid on timing, but you know, this book is going to make some people sad because it actually doesn't criticize the committee. It just talks about my part of the data and the 20 years of experience I had in counterterrorism and data analytics. So it's pretty exciting, you know, what the committee did with the data. And, you know, I think the, the hearing on Wednesday is going to be part of that. I, I would hope that some of this data that they might have been found after I left will come to light. But, you know, it, the, the book really is about counterterrorism. It's about cults and it's about data and how we can use data to look at cult-like behavior, to look at Christian nationalism, but also to look at how these type of bizarre behaviors and belief systems can saturate the top of a political party like the GOP. So, uh, I, I, you know, when people read the book, I think it's, it's going to be okay, Casey. I think it's going to be just okay. So you said in your interview with CBS 60 Minutes that there was this call between the White House and a rioter who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And as Sarah Murray just outlined, CNN has identified the man. It's this 26-year-old, Anton Lunick. And we've also reported that the call lasted just nine seconds, whether it was intentional or whether it went to voicemail. We still don't know that. Uh, and Sarah Murray just reported on January 6th committee member Adam Schiff downplaying your comments and the, the fact of this call. And we also heard, though, from two other committee members who spoke out. Watch. I don't know what Mr. Riegelman is doing, really. That's one of thousands of details that obviously the committee is aware of. So what do you make of this? Uh, you know, the committee is doing a great job. And I think what you're seeing, there might have been a little bit of nervousness about the calls. But I think what you're going to see when you see a phone call like that that actually originates from inside the White House, it's interesting because all you want to know is where, who actually called and from what desk. And when you're talking about individuals saying we're looking at thousands of lines of data or thousands of you know, pieces of data, Jamie's right, and I really respect Jamie, but we have millions of lines of data. And that is really a robust problem set that we have to crack. And, and to be honest, you know, when you look at what's going on, it's a simple question, who made the call? I really, don't, I really don't count anybody who says, well, I don't know anybody in the White House and I don't remember the call. Why don't we go to the originator? And I know that the committee has tried to do that because those White House extensions are very important. And, you know, for me as a data guy, I really don't pay attention to what somebody's saying when the data is telling me something else. The committee, members of the committee have expressed some concerns. They've said they're very careful about what they put out into the public domain to, to be very careful to maintain the credibility of the investigation. Are you at all concerned that you're undermining it? No, because data is data. And, you know, I stay with my specific part of that with 20 years of experience in counterterrorism, data analytics and targeting. And, you know, so that's why I'm just really not that worried. I think people need to read the book because it doesn't go into the committee investigative teams. It doesn't try to in any way, 
you know, go against the committee. I mean, that's just ludicrous. What it does do is say that, listen, we're in a continuous fight, an information war. That's really our new forever war. And I'd go back and use my baseline, I would say, experiences and my training in the military and data analytics and non-kinetic targeting and, and telephony analysis to say, hey, we can go so much further if we have the resources. And that's why on the last interview, I said, you know, if the committee had more resources and more authorities, they could go a lot further. But the, the, the committee is a public trust committee. They're not, a, they're not at a committee that's going after this in a criminal way. So um, I just think if the committee even had yeah. more resources, it would be even more robust. So you told 60 Minutes that you ultimately stopped working with the January 6th committee because they wouldn't subpoena Ginny Thomas. And CNN was first to report last week that Thomas has actually agreed now to sit for an interview with the committee. What do you think what should be at the top of their agenda to ask her? Well, the first thing you want to ask is about all of her contacts. For instance, she had a forwarded text from Connie Hare, who was actually the chief of staff for Louis Gohmert. You want to ask her what type of emails she sent to Jared Kushner. You want to ask her what other high-level officials she was talking about, uh, what she was talking Stop the Steal about when she was talking about her contacts that she had within the White House. You want to ask her those questions. They're not very hard questions. And, you know, they might seem difficult, but I think the committee is interested in that. And I'd I think it would be very curious to see what Jenny Thomas says if you ask her some of those directed questions. So what was the hang up here? I mean, why did it take so long for the committee and Thomas to come to an agreement on the interview? Was there someone on the committee who opposed interviewing her? Was Thomas pushing back? How did this play out? I actually go through that in the book. And the thing is, is sometimes, uh, sometimes, Casey, I was pretty aggressive. And uh, the committee, you know, there's a lot of things you have to do with seven investigative teams. And I was pushing pretty hard. So really what it comes down to is decisions on priorities. And I think, you know, we found the text pretty early. I think we were looking at Trump at the time. I was pushing pretty hard. Um, it was, it was a, it sort of was even a lightning bolt to me on that last statement on 60 Minutes. That was one of the reasons, you know, that I was frustrated um, and one of the reasons that, uh, that really got to me for a time. But in the book I stayed, I started to see, you know, that maybe the committee had some points about maybe holding back in some ways, but I still think we should have been more aggressive in the long term with Jenny Thomas. So do you not think the current approach is aggressive enough? And I mean, what do you think changed that now she's coming in? When you look at process and data, I think when you look at the data and look exactly what's said in the people that she had around her and what she was actually mentioning, I think aggression on the data is the most important thing. There was other decision points that the committee had to make, and that's why I stay away from really trying to criticize the committee in any way, because I know that they have a lot more challenges. But when you see the data right then, you want to grab it because data is perishable. Not only that, those contacts are perishable. What people remember is perishable. And when you see the wife of a Supreme Court justice who's sending things that, that seem completely outlandish, absolutely ridiculous, and it looks like that's part of the policy of the White House, I think that's something you could jump on from a data perspective. So yesterday, uh, Jake Tapper asked Congressman Adam Schiff about the possibility of criminal referrals from the committee to DOJ. Let's watch. We operate uh, with a high degree of consensus and unanimity. Uh, you know, it will be certainly, I think, my recommendation, my feeling that we should make referrals. Uh, but we will get to a decision as a committee and we will all abide by that decision. And I will join our committee members uh, if they feel differently. So quickly, based on your work with the committee, do you think the group can come to a unanimous decision on recommending charges to the DOJ? Gosh, Casey, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm not in the room anymore, right? I'm not behind there. I will tell you this. I don't know if it matters. I think, uh, I think the DOJ is going to make a decision based on their best interest. But what has the committee proven? Let's see what their work has already done. It's proven that there's been bizarre conspiracy theories that drove an insurrection on January 6th based on QAnon adherence and stop the steal conspiracy theories. 
It's proved that multiple individuals in the Trump administration were involved in the planning. It's proved, it's been proven that Donald Trump with the attorneys that he had, had some of the craziest people around him. You know, you talk about team normal, but we know that he was listening to team crazy. We've proven that the judgment of a, of a sitting president was absolutely erroneous and maybe almost on the unhinged about how to overturn the election. And we've proven that a president yeah. was okay with Vice President Pence being attacked that day. So I think when you look at the public trust, the committee has already done an incredible job of ensuring that the public knows that President Trump was, was in a very, ten, uh, I would say, a culpable position on what happened on January 6th. All right, Denver Riggleman, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thanks, Casey. Up next here, the warning, urgent warning, from the mayor of Tampa, Florida, as Hurricane Ian moves in. This is nothing to mess around with. If you can leave, just leave now. Why forecasters are calling projections for this system unprecedented. Plus, Russia's mass exodus, traffic along the border stretched for miles. What has so many people on the run now, seven months into Putin's war in Ukraine? Topping our national lead, emergency evacuations are underway as Hurricane Ian races towards Florida's Gulf Coast. It's a quote, near worst case scenario for Tampa. That's according to the director of the National Hurricane Center, as dozens of Tampa area schools and universities have already canceled classes. Tom Sater is live in the CNN Weather Center. Tom, where's Hurricane Ian right now? It's uh, currently about 175 miles just to the south of the western tip of Cuba. And the good news is uh, western Cuba, it's sparsely populated area. However, we've already seen it undergo one round of rapid intensification. That's when a storm blows up 35 miles per hour in strength in less than 24 hours. I mean, we're at 85 now. If I show you the radar, and I will here, here's Cayman Islands. So if you look off in this area, you can really see the pinwheel effect and getting those bands of moving to the southern coast of Cuba. But you can see that well-defined eye. But we don't have an eye in satellite image. Once we do, this system will start firing on all cylinders. Just last Thursday, this was a disturbance near Trinidad Tobago. I mentioned then it's going to be it's the acorn to become the oak tree. I didn't know this could be Tampa Bay's Superstorm Sandy. It's in the warmest waters of the Atlantic. So not only undergoing one round of rapid intensification, it could do it again. And that's what we fear, along with that more of a northerly movement. Category three, just off the coast, it goes up to a category four. Now, even though it drops in its category, and you can see it near Tampa as a two, pay no attention to that two. That's just your wind speed. Once it gets to category four, it's going to have that surge underneath it, equivalent of a category four, and carry it into the bay and all of the inlets. So even though it's a two, it carries that surge with it. Uh, you look at the warnings now that we have an effect, tropical storm in yellow, but we have that hurricane watch for good reason up to the north in the Tampa Bay area. All signs this is going to park itself there, Casey, for quite some time. Wow, and Tom, Tampa hasn't seen a storm like this in 100 years. I mean, why is that area so vulnerable? Well, part of it is geographical, how it is kind of sat in this area with the bay in the region. You see the American model, you see the European model that are agreeing now, Casey, this is what we do not want. But also, think of the millions that have moved into the area. I mean, this is going to be the first major hurricane to pass, you know, 25 miles, closest pass to Tampa uh, since 1950. But the problem is it's going to stall. It's the last thing we want, and it's the worst-case scenario. When hurricanes stall, bad things happen, and it's going to stall right offshore. So it's 36, 48 hours, it's going to throw the storm surge into Tampa Bay and all the inlets. And it's not just on the coastline. You can see Tampa 5 to 10 feet, 5 to 8 from Sarasota down south of Inglewood. But if you get in closer and you look at all of these inlets in the bay, 
Once that surge moves in and it continues to churn offshore, not moving for 36 to 48 hours, not only is it pushing it miles in, it impedes the water from receding. And then you add on top of that 10, 20 inches of rainfall. I mean, you get into part, uh, Port Charlotte here in the harbor, this is Peace River. You know how many miles that is? Think of the thousands and thousands of homes, waterfront, businesses, churches, hospitals at water level. And then you toss in the angle of the seafloor as it rises to land. It's going to be like an, uh, an onshoot to a highway. It's going to be like a fire hose. So the surge and the rain are the worst parts of this storm. But parking off the coast, it's the worst case scenario. Could be their Superstorm Sandy. There's no doubt about it. All right, Tom Sater. Thanks very much for that. So as Tom said, Cubans are also bracing for impact as Ian is expected to wallop the western end of the island. Let's bring in CNN's Patrick Ottman, who is in Havana. Uh, Patrick, how's everyone preparing down there? They are uh, finalizing the preparations because, of course, once the storm really hits us, then it'll be too late to get ready. So the government here has been warning here, particularly on the people on the westernmost province of Pinar del Rio, to get ready if they live on islands up the coast, to get into the mainland, to get off uh, away from the coastal areas. We've seen ships leaving the port of Havana throughout the day, cargo ships, uh, because they cannot be in the port here where they could break loose and cause damage, even sink. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, in a country where the economy is already in such dire straits, you really can't go and and, and do a hurricane shopping or buy plywood. The stores are already empty. So what people really have to do right now is try to get to their homes, uh, try to get someplace safe. And even in Havana, where the storm's not expected to hit, if we get tropical storm force winds or rains, that can cause buildings here to collapse. So it's still a very dangerous situation here. And people know they only have a few hours left. All right, Patrick Ottman in Cuba. Stay safe. Thank you very much for that. Coming up next... Clear boxes and armed guards, what Russia's so-called sham elections look like as Putin tries to pull off yet another land grab in Ukraine. In our world lead, sham referendums. That's what authorities in Kyiv and many Western countries call the Kremlin's so-called secession votes in four Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine. These are the clear ballot boxes Russia is using as authorities go door-to-door trailed by armed guards to collect votes for Putin's forced elections, which Ukrainian officials say are preordained and effectively being carried out at gunpoint. CNN's Matthew Chance joins us live with more on this. Uh, Matthew, how are Ukrainian officials responding to these Russian-backed referendums? Um, Well, they're rejecting them, um, in short. Uh, They've said this is illegitimate. They've pointed out what many international observers have pointed out, which is that these uh, referendums are being carried out under the barrel of a gun, and basically have very little in terms of legitimacy. And you just referred to one of the examples there. There are reports that, you know, Russian soldiers or Russian back soldiers, um, so it could be from the separatist, uh, uh, you know, uh, fighters as well, are going door to door getting people's votes. You know, these are armed, you know, soldiers going to people's doors, getting people to vote right there and then. And if they don't vote uh, for the, uh, the country to join Russia, for the region to join Russia, then there are reports of some people being taken away as a means of simply intimidating people to, to, to vote for what the Kremlin wants them to vote for. Um, there's been you know, extraordinary claims being made by the Russian side on the uh, amount of turnout, something in the region of 77, 76 percent in both uh, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk uh, regions, which is 
extraordinary given uh, what we know about how many people have left those areas. And so, yes, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a whole kind of sense that these are not legitimate undertakings at all and they've been condemned around the world as such. Hmm. There's also been massive backlash and protests in Russia after Putin's order of increased military conscription for the war in Ukraine. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, that, that backlash continues. Uh, the, the stakes are really getting higher and higher for uh, Vladimir Putin inside of Russia. We've seen some extraordinary scenes. Remember, this is a country where protests like this are against the law. People are rest, arrested en masse for coming out in the streets and voicing their opposition. Yet, in some areas of the country, particularly in the south, in the uh, Republic of Dagestan, uh, which has been very severely hit in terms of the mobilisation, you've seen crowds of people coming out, confronting the authorities, physically trying to block the buses that have been put on by the military from taking away their uh, men uh, to serve in, in the Russian armed forces. As that happens, um, there have been very unusual scenes as well at the borders of Russia, in the south, in towards the Georgian border, a tailback of cars over 10 miles, according to the latest satellite imagery, and in the west towards Finland, m you know, double the amount of Russians, mainly men, trying to exit the country to escape mobilisation, Casey. Wow, Matthew Chance, thanks very much for that reporting. And in the war-torn town of Tereshk, located in eastern Ukraine, residents have faced months of airstrikes and heavy shelling from Russian forces. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports on one 73-year-old Ukrainian woman's battle to survive, living the last six months there without water or help. When the blasts pause in rare quiet in Turetsk, there are few blessings to count and most are bitter. One is here, a familiar scene of private worlds torn open by a Russian rocket two days earlier, but a place that might persuade you to believe in miracles. 19 people were trapped up here when rubble blocked the stairs, but somehow not one of them was even injured. A fire brigade ladder getting them all out. Not even survivors like Natalia know how. A noise. I blinked twice and couldn't see. The balcony door flew open and trash blew in. I'm terrified of flames and I realized we're on the seventh floor and it's collapsing. Then someone screamed, don't come out, as there's no way. It's a miracle. I can't call it anything else. As Putin's fake referenda, just a few miles away, threaten yet worse here, just now, the shelling has finally become too much for some. <coughs> Rescuers are evacuating Nina, 73, after six months living alone without water or help. <laughs> We're told she's the last person to leave her block. Two days ago, a rocket hit her building. Yet also, magically, she was unscathed and just sat here under the gaping hole. The lonely agony of the struggle before this moment lying around. The pictures of life left, of her A student daughter who died of meningitis aged 40, of the choices of what to leave and what to take, of how hard just eating, washing and drinking has been. 
winter will rip through here. And this may be the last time the lights go out on this home. She's taken to the courtyard where dozens of similar agonies are gathered, waiting for the evacuation bus. And that are baffled by the heaviest question, why? Then the guns pick up again. Artillery firing from near where we are. Well, that's been responded to by the Russians and a shell landed over here. So they're trying to get people on the bus as fast as they can to get them out of here. Dozens of lives with everything left behind them and nothing certain ahead. Now, in the back of the minds of so many leaving that town was the likelihood in the middle of this week when Russia declares these fake referenda have somehow given them the right to assimilate parts of territory that they occupy in Ukraine, that Putin may use that to escalate somehow. His foreign minister over the weekend saying they're prepared to fully defend areas that have formerly become part of Russia. Many concern he might be pointing towards the nuclear threats we've been hearing a very tense week ahead here in Ukraine. And as I say, here in the east, Blast continuing in this town, Kramatorsk, where we are. Casey? Very tense indeed. Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine. Thanks very much for that reporting. In Russia, a gunman wearing Nazi symbols opened fire at a school, killing at least 15, including 11 children and injuring 24 others. Local media accounts report the gunman killed the school security guard before walking into the school and opening fire on children, many as young as seven years old. The shooting took place in a western Russian city about 600 miles from Moscow. The gunman has been identified as a 34-year-old former student at the school. Authorities say he died by suicide following the attack. You are watching Iranian security forces fire tear gas at protesters as demonstrations there rage into their 10th day. Despite claims by Iran's state media that the government has quashed the uprising, ignited by the death of a 22-year-old woman. Massa Amini in police custody, arrested for the crime of not covering her hair. Now, as CNN's Jomana Karadche reports, families are burying loved ones killed by the government they're protesting. Regime supporters out en masse. These organized pro-government rallies a show of unity against the so-called rioters, they say. Iran's leadership is dismissing the thousands of protesters across the country as a handful of mercenaries. They claim it's all a foreign plot to destabilize the Islamic Republic that is only just beginning to unleash its brutal force to crush the rising voices of dissent. It's throttling the internet, blocking social media sites, dragging protesters off the streets, in using lethal force to silence those rising up for their rights. No one really knows how many lives have been lost. But the gut-wrenching scenes of those grieving their loved ones are slowly trickling out. 
The heartache, the agony of families burying their dead need no words to explain. Her name is Hadith Najafi, one of countless women who've said enough to tyranny and repression. Hadith never made it back from a protest. Her family says she was shot six times. Her Instagram posts tell a story of a young woman who loved her country, loved life, music, dressing up and dancing. Her devastated sister warning her in this Instagram post. She writes, Sis, how did they have the heart to shoot you? My tears have dried up. I can't breathe. Forgive me. I wasn't there to defend you. Hadith was 23. The threat of bullets, of prison, of flogging hasn't stopped the protests. Nightfall brought hundreds back on the streets. Their daring chants of death to the dictator echoing through the dark streets of Iran. A defiant generation risking it all for freedoms they've never known. And Casey, we must add that CNN cannot independently verify death toll claims, but we are getting various casualty figures coming from different organizations and groups, including Amnesty International, even Iranian state media, and they put the death toll anywhere between 30 to 50 people. But there is a lot of concern that it is far worse than that, as we've seen with previous protest movements. And Unfortunately, we may not know the true extent of this crackdown until Internet connectivity is restored in the country. Casey? Jamana Karachi, thanks very much for that reporting. A ban on abortions from 1901, now in effect in 2022 in Arizona. Up next, a mother whose pregnancy has put her life in danger. In the politics lead, women's access to abortions is becoming increasingly limited following the overturn, overturning of Roe versus Wade. This after a near total ban on all abortions with no exceptions for rape or incest is now being imposed in Arizona. A judge there ruled late Friday that a 1901 ban must be enforced. This ruling came a day before the state's 15-week abortion ban went into effect and just six weeks before the midterm elections. CNN's Kyung La got rare access to an abortion clinic in Tucson, Arizona, and spoke with one of the last women to receive a safe and legal abortion there. At the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Tucson, Arizona, we meet a 23-year-old patient, a mother of two boys, nine weeks pregnant with her third. You could see the head and the little nose. A baby she will never hold. What brought me here is um, an abortion by choice. We're calling her Jane to protect her privacy. Her last pregnancy almost killed her. Um, breathing machines and paperwork to sign to decide whether I have to save my life or my son's life. Two and a half months ago, she and her partner's birth control failed. Um, I'm only nine weeks right now. Nine weeks and all of this pain. All of this pain. What if I do and I keep this baby and I lose my life and I can't be there for my other two sons? 
Jane will be among the last women to receive a safe and legal abortion in Arizona. The Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade threw state laws into chaos. Days after we met Jane, an Arizona judge ruled a 1901 law banning abortion with no exception for rape or incest, but does consider the life of a mother, is the law of the state. Oh, it's constant fear. It is constant fear. Like I said, it feels like you're alone. Like you're being given only one option by a man who doesn't know half of the struggles that us women go through or the women that want to have babies and can't or the traumas that we've experienced through our life. It is very, very frightening. The doctor in this clinic is Jill Gibson, Planned Parenthood Arizona's medical director. To have politicians who have never had any formal medical training, for them to come into that exam room and make these decisions for which they have no basis is completely unacceptable. We met Gibson at the only fully functioning Planned Parenthood clinic in Tucson. Under the now existing pre-statehood law, if she performs abortions that don't fall under the state's strict guidelines, she faces prosecution and up to five years in prison. At another clinic in nearby Phoenix. What's happening here now? Nothing. This is Keisha calling from Planned Parenthood. Registered nurse Keisha Talbert now arranges travel to get women out of Phoenix to Tucson. So what I want to do is I can get you um, funding for your procedure. People are furious. People are infuriated. And so I'm really hoping that the electorate will be able to tap into that collective rage. Uh, good afternoon. Activists hope that rage exists outside the clinics and will translate at the polls in November, especially among women. She's been unwavering, really, in her support for abortion rights and access. I knew that the woman was a Republican. A registered Republican. A registered Republican. Who says she will cross party lines to vote for candidates who support abortion rights. What does that tell you about Arizona, and especially women? Even for Republicans, it's not an issue that just Democratic women face. It's an issue that all women face. Back at the Tucson Clinic. Jesus died so you could live. Turn to him. Turn from your sin. Anti-abortion activists believe overturning Roe will pay off for conservatives this midterm. As a Christian, I believe God is pro-life, Jesus is pro-life, and every single life has value. So I think that it's a very good thing. But for the woman inside today, it's so much more complicated than politics. Would you have wanted this baby? If it didn't come with all the complications and everything that it did, probably, yes. I feel like more women should take a stand. If we speak okay. up more, maybe our voices will be heard. And we have this breaking development out of Arizona. Planned Parenthood Arizona has filed a notice of appeal as well as an emergency stay. While all of this legal battle is happening, Casey, abortion services are being halted out of fear that doctors and women could face prison time for abortion services. Casey. All right, Kyung Law, thanks very much for that report. Next here, business owners with a bone to pick with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his decision to send migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. In our money lead, the current migrant crisis colliding with the nation's labor shortage. 
CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz reports business owners say legal asylum seekers are being sent out of the very states where they're needed most. It didn't make any sense. Why are they sending them there when we need the people here? Help us to help the economy grow. Dozens of asylum seekers were sent on flights from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, lured with the promise of a job. While Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis arranged the flights, business owners in his own state are struggling to find anyone to fill their open jobs. We know that we have a massive labor shortage in Florida. There are at least 670,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. awaiting their cases to be heard. The average wait time, four and a half years. In the meantime, they can apply to legally work, a process that can take several months. DeSantis said he believes these asylum seekers were coming to Florida from Texas. So he used funds allocated to move migrants out of Florida where the planes made a stopover. It's hard to watch willing workers leave your state with tax dollars. Jessica Cooper owns a small farm outside of Orlando. We're finding that it's hard to keep domestic labor. This is a hard job, right? This is not for everyone. Whether these asylum seekers were intending to come to Florida on their own. Absolutely would have welcomed them. Why not lift up the small businesses in a way that they're also being helped on their labor. The construction industry is facing an aging workforce. The average age of asylum seekers, 35. The industry is short 650,000 workers, but has an average wage of $35 an hour. If they are able to legally work here, we have jobs for them. We have opportunities for them to not just take care of themselves, but their families. There are major construction projects underway in Florida, like Universal Epic in Orlando, aimed at attracting tourists to the state, and billions of dollars more allocated to state projects, but not enough people to do the work. You see Orlando, the way that it's growing, the way the construction is growing, the job is there. And there is a quality people coming from other countries. Good, we have full house. The hospitality industry has been slowed to recover from the pandemic. There are still 1.5 million open hospitality jobs in the U.S. It's very tough to find those employees. I mean, I was making uh, beds a couple of days ago. You, as the president, were making beds. That is correct, Because you couldn't find anyone to do it. No. As an immigrant from India who arrived to the U.S. with just $6, he says he understands the value of a job and the chance to work to achieve a dream. He says if he were DeSantis, he would have done things differently. I would have kept them here. I mean, I would have utilized them in my hotels. Trust me. And it's not just in Florida. There are 11.2 million open jobs across the country. That is why you're hearing from small business owners and large corporations for immigration reform, Casey. They believe it's a win for the migrants looking for legal work, the business owners, and a win for the economy. Casey? All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks very much for that. Up next, NASA's test run tonight to save planet Earth. In our out-of-this-world lead, in about two hours, a NASA spacecraft will deliberately crash into an asteroid and knock it off course. This is only a test, but if successful, NASA can use this tactic to divert future asteroids from hitting Earth. NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, 
is considered the first attempt at deflecting an asteroid without blowing it up. While this is all happening almost 7 million miles from Earth, you can watch it in about two hours online. Our coverage continues right now with The Situation. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 